The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Witchcraft and the occult are thriving today, and that concerned one believer who wrote to me asking for prayer for protection against spells from enemies who were fighting his destiny, he said, and fighting his calling. And he said they were like thorns in his side. But my reply was, you don't need my prayers for this. Instead, you must learn and believe Proverbs 26.2, which says, as the sparrow in its wandering, as the swallow in its flight, so the curse causeless shall never come. And the Good News translation renders Proverbs 26.2 like this, curses cannot hurt you unless you deserve them. They're like birds that fly by and never light. Shalom, I'm Christine Doric. When we know the benefits of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, we can go through life fearless of what people can do to us. They may kill the body, but they can never touch the soul that's born again with eternal life. People may hurl curses at us, but Proverbs 26.2, one of my favorite verses, and I have many favorite verses in this book, it says that a curse without a cause can't alight on you like a bird that lands on something. The curse will flutter and fly away into oblivion. However, there are messengers of Satan who... God allows to buffet us to keep us from becoming prideful in our walk with the Lord. Through the history of the church, the debate has gone on continually about what was the thorn that Paul alluded to in 2 Corinthians 12, 17. It wasn't a curse. I also believe it wasn't a disease because Paul led a very robust life of evangelism in travel. He got up and he kept going despite scourgings and stonings. But in this verse, Paul explained that the thorn in his life was due to the stupendous revelations given to him from the Lord. And therefore, to keep him from conceit, he was given this thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him and keep him humble. Now, some theologians have speculated that the thorn was a sickness or disease. And those who despise the healing message of the cross usually take up that argument of sickness as somehow a badge of honor. But Paul made it clear in the very verse that's become so controversial that the thorn was not a sickness or a situation, but he said it was a person, a messenger of Satan who tormented him. Paul said the reason why he was given this thorn was because of the abundance of revelations that he had received. Paul said that his revelations came directly from the Lord. And he had so many revelations that he, in fact, wrote a great deal of the New Testament. Even once he was caught up into the third heaven 
where he heard unspeakable words not lawful for a man to utter. And a person who enjoyed such extraordinary favor with God would naturally be vulnerable to the praises of men and the snare of the devil. And so to counter the temptation to be exalted, God allowed the devil to stir up people to persecute Paul continually. If believers who are sick think that they're suffering with Paul's thorn, then we need to ask them, what is the abundance of your revelations? Because if you don't have an abundance of revelations, then why do you have this thorn? Well, to understand Paul's thorn and what's going on, I believe in the Middle East today, we have to think Hebraically. We have to look at this verse in 2 Corinthians about having a thorn in the flesh in light of other verses in the Bible. In other words, we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture because, after all, the Bible is its own best commentary. Now, the expression thorn in the flesh is used in the Hebrew Scriptures, Scriptures that Rabbi Paul used continually as his frame of reference. The Hebrew Scriptures describe people who torment, who attack, who fight, who oppose our mission as thorns. So I'm going to mention the cross-references given with Paul's verse in 2 Corinthians about the thorn in the flesh, and you'll see that the cross-references all refer to opposition from human beings or from demons operating behind human beings. So first of all, let's look in the Torah. Let's look in the book of Numbers 33, 55, where the thorn idiom first appears. Here we are on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And the Lord instructed the generation of Israelites who were entering the promised land after their slavery in Egypt. God said, if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land, then it'll come to pass that those whom you allow to remain will become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land. This warning about the Canaanites becoming thorns in their flesh is here given for the first time because the danger was now about to become a reality. The text says the inhabitants will become pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And that's exactly, of course, what happened. And then later in Joshua chapter 23, after a long time had passed, Moses' successor, Joshua, was an old man. So he summoned Israel's elders and leaders, and he used the same idiom about the heathen in the land being like thorns. Joshua said to the Israelites, the Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. But he said, if you turn away and ally yourself with any of the survivors of these nations, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then verse 13 of Joshua 23 says, Then be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they'll become snares and traps for you. He said, they'll be like whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land, which the Lord your God has given to you. 
Now, I'm sure that these are the idioms Paul, the Bible scholar, was thinking of when he said God had assigned to him a thorn in the flesh. Now, further on uh, in the book of Judges, Judges 2, 3, the same figure of speech is used, enemies being like troublemakers, thorns in your sides. The Israelites were warned that the sins and degradations of the heathen nations were so corrupt that the Israelites would be defiled if they intermingled with them. If they didn't drive out these inhabitants, if the Israelites became lazy or cowardly or made friendships, alliances with these heathen, the sins of the Canaanites would bring a great curse and calamities upon the Israelite nation. And so the Canaanites were called thorns in the flesh. Another cross-reference, we see the same principle in the book of Job. In Job 2.6, God gives Satan permission to torment Job, but he couldn't take Job's life. It was Satan who was behind all of Job's sufferings. Satan was the messenger who tormented Job. Now, our next cross-reference is a glorious prophecy of what it's finally going to be like for Israel in the millennium when their neighbors live with them in peace. We're going to go to Ezekiel 28 and verse 24. It says, no longer would the people of Israel have malicious neighbors who are like painful briars and sharp thorns. Then they will know that I am the sovereign Lord when this happens. So please notice that unpeaceful neighbors are referred to as thorns and briars in the flesh. Ezekiel 28 continues with this beautiful prophecy. This is what the sovereign Lord declares. When I gather the people of Israel from the nations where they have been scattered, I will be proved holy through them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. Whom did God give the land to? It says here, his servant Jacob, whose name was, of course, changed to Israel. Ezekiel 28 goes on. They will live there in safety and will build houses and plant vineyards. They will live in safety when I inflict punishment on all their neighbors who maligned them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Do you believe this prophecy will come to pass? I do. I believe this. Bible prophecy is continually coming to pass in our lifetime. And I want to mention other end time prophecies concerning Israel that every believer should know. This should be like end time 101. I have time really to mention only a handful of these prophecies today, but there are many. Already in the beginning of the Israelite nation in the Torah in Deuteronomy 30, Verses 3 to 5, God foretold that the Jewish people would be scattered to all the nations because of their sins. But because of God's faithfulness, the fortunes of the people of Israel would be restored. And it's happening. And not only that, God promised that their latter end would be greater than their former glory. So listen to this prophecy from the book of Moses in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30. It says, The Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. 
If you're outcasts are at the ends of the earth, God says from there, he's going to regather you and bring you back. The Lord, your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. What land is this? Of course, it's the land of Israel and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So their latter end is going to be greater. And I ask you, is this happening? Yes. And I am an eyewitness of it in Israel continually. In my generation, these verses have begun to come to pass as God has been regathering the Jewish people literally from the four corners of the earth. I've met, of course, European Jews many times and Jews from North Africa, from Babylon. And our friend Michael Froon is busy in his organization bringing back Jewish people from the lost tribes in India and China and so forth. But why doesn't the church know about these things? Why don't the pastors eagerly teach about these things? Because it gives such validity to the word of God. This lack of teaching in the church is a heartache that I bear continually. And it's the heartache of the God of Israel himself, who is restoring his ancient people at this time. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that Israel as a nation would be reborn in one day. That verse is found in Isaiah 66, 8. It asks, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? But it says, as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her sons. That travail happened. And in one day, 14th of May, 1948, the new Israel was born in a day. Now, also in Ezekiel chapter 34, in verse 13, the faithful God of Israel declares, I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. Whose land? It says their own land. And I will feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. As I was studying this week, it's interesting that the NIV renders this verse like this. I will bring them from out of the nations into their own land and in all the settlements in the land. Oh dear, there's that word settlements considered today by the biblically illiterate as politically incorrect as the Jewish people have resettled the heartland of Judea and Samaria. Now, Ezekiel 37 is such an important chapter. Every pastor needs to teach their congregation, Ezekiel's chapter 37, 38, and 39, because they read like current events. Ezekiel 37 describes the resurrection of Israel and their exceedingly great army that will reappear. Did this happen? Yes. And you may wonder how it is that tiny Israel continues to win all these wars against such great odds. Yet again, way back in the Torah, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, God promised in verse eight, five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. And what about Amos chapter nine, a, a chapter that I'm literally living in every day? Why don't we hear this glorious prophetic chapter taught in the churches? 
The church leaders must get to grips with these prophecies that are coming to pass right before our eyes. Well, Amos 9 declares that Jacob's descendants will regain control of the land of Israel. And we're living in this. We're eyewitnesses. It says in Amos 9, in that day, I will restore David's fallen tabernacle, Sukkah, shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. And I will rebuild it as in the days of old so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. And verse 14 is so important. It says, God says, I will bring back my people Israel from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. It's happened. He said they will plant vineyards and drink their wine. And by the way, I heard recently that the Israelis won an international wine contest. The blindfolded judges picked the Israeli wine over French wine. God says they will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them says the Lord, your God. And what about the great prophet Jeremiah? Jeremiah also had a lot to say about Israel in the last days. For one thing, and this is amazing, he prophesied that the exodus from the nations in the last days would be greater than the Israelite exodus from Egypt in the Bible. That always catches my imagination. So I'm going to read to you that verse from Jeremiah chapter 16 in verse 14. Therefore, behold, declares the Lord, when it, it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But, verse 15, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all of the countries where he had banished them. For he said, I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. In the next verse, 16 speaks of the fishers and the hunters. The fishers are the agents and agencies that have told the Jews to go home. And the hunters are the ones who give a more violent call that is time to go home. Behold, I'm going to call for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And then if they don't go, that verse says, afterwards, I will send for many hunters and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the cliffs of the rocks. Solemnly, I have to say that the Nazis during the Holocaust fulfilled that verse as the hunters. Well, despite all the warfare, the United Nations animosity against Israel, nevertheless, God promised that he would watch over the people of Israel to bring them home again and protect them. And so I often teach on this verse, Jeremiah 31.10. What a verse, because it's so clear. It says, hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the islands afar off. So I especially delight in declaring this verse in the British Isles. And say, God said, say to the nations and to the islands, he that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Amen. But presently, tragically, because of the nature of end time spiritual warfare, because of thorns in the flesh, the beleaguered Jewish state is now perceived as 
Bob Dylan wrote in a song, The Neighborhood Bully. The lyrics go like this. His enemies say he's on their land. They got him outnumbered about a million to one. He's got no place to escape to, no place to run. He's the neighborhood bully. He just lives to survive. He's criticized and condemned for being alive. Not supposed to fight back. Have a thick skin. Supposed to lay down and die when his door is kicked in. He's the neighborhood bully. The neighborhood bully has been driven out of every land. He's wandered the earth and exiled man. Seen his family scattered, his people hounded and torn. He's always on trial for just being born because he's the neighborhood bully. That tiny Jewish state, the constant target of governments, celebrities, and sadly, churches because of their unbiblical stance. That Israel is the problem. If only Israel didn't exist, the Palestinians would be happy. So now the tables are turned. Who is the thorn in the side of whom? Today, Israelis are perceived as the thorns in the sides of the Palestinians and Gazans, who nevertheless send rockets and suicide bombers into Israel's civilian populations. Has the world gone mad? Even in the year 2000, former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak agreed to give away more than 95% of the West Bank and all of the Gaza Strip. But at the time, Yasser Arafat refused. Still, I'm here to tell you that the Holy Spirit is at work behind the scenes. Our ministry knows many peacemakers, both Arabs and Israelis, who are empathetic towards one another, who teach empathy, understanding, and reaching out to one another, respect for one another, awarding genuine justice, and so forth. Now, concerning our topic of what is the thorn in the flesh and how it relates even to today, I've been in this program mentioning some cross-references to 2 Corinthians 12, 17, that verse mentioning Paul's famous thorn in the flesh. So far, I've given cross-references from the Hebrew Scriptures. But now, let's take a moment to consider another reference in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 5, 5, the Apostle Paul turns over to Satan, a member of the church in Corinth who was engaged in sexual sin. Well, that sounds pretty radical, church discipline by the standards of today's congregations. Sadly, where almost anything goes and almost anything is tolerated. But what was the purpose of this man being turned over by Paul under his apostolic authority to Satan. Well, it was, Paul said, for the destruction of the flesh. That's pretty severe. But it was a severe mercy so that the man's spirit would be saved on the day of the Lord and so that he wouldn't be sent to eternal perdition. Now, if God allows a thorn in the flesh, if he allows spiritual warfare for our own protection from sin and pride and arrogance, as was the case with Paul due to his abundance of revelations, how else might we see this principle being enacted in the Middle East today? The Jewish people have been returning, just as the Bible predicted, from the four corners of the earth. But they've been forced to engage in continual warfare from day one of the new Israel. Their neighbors have still 
been thorns in their flesh, just as in the days of old. But it's fascinating that things seem to be turned upside down and politicians and pundits are looking at Israel and the Jews as being the thorns in the flesh of the Palestinians. Lord Arthur Balfour, author of Britain's 1917 Balfour Declaration, the so-called birth certificate of modern Israel, though dead in his grave, seems to be a thorn in the flesh of politically correct politicians and pundits for having dared to suggest that the Jewish people should have a state in their national homeland after so many centuries of wandering and sufferings. The Iranians are particularly thorns in the sides of modern Israel. They can't stay within their borders, but they keep attacking the Jewish state through their proxies in Lebanon and Syria in their crazed vow to destroy what God has built again in Israel, in the Middle East. Britain was one of the greatest empires in history until it turned its back on the Jews. At the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, many leaders, not only Lord Balfour, but also William Gladstone, Lord Shaftesbury, and Edmund Allenby were Bible believers because they knew their Bibles and had strong influences from Bible-oriented churches. They believed that God had raised up the British Empire to spread the gospel around the world and also to assist the Jews in regaining their ancient homeland. This is one of the reasons why Britain issued the Balfour Declaration in 1917, which favored the Jewish state. Sadly, later leaders who became biblically illiterate didn't adhere to a biblical worldview and conveniently they turned their backs on the Jews in favor of Arab oil. Britain lost its empire and nevertheless Israel was reborn right on schedule in the foreordained eternal purposes of the Almighty. Let's believe for Britain to regain its mandate to take the gospel around the world. Well, I must bring all of this together now and I'm wondering about you. Is the subject of Israel a thorn in your flesh? Do you wish somehow the whole problem in the Middle East would just go away and evaporate because you're tired of hearing about it? Or can you accept the view that the birth pangs in the Middle East mean that Jesus is coming and that God in his mercy is giving all of us space to repent and to get right with God? And how do we get right with God? The Bible says that if we believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead, and if we're willing to surrender our lives to him and make Jesus Lord of our lives, we shall be saved. Salvation is the good news of the gospel. And the gospel also includes healing. People may be thorns in your sides and pricks in your eyes, to use the Bible idioms. But Jesus said he came to give us abundant life and health if we will receive it. I'm walking in divine health claiming all the promises in this book. And I want to encourage you to do the same. To stay in health, it's so important to make the daily choice to forgive. There's such power in forgiveness. That person who's a thorn in your flesh, that troublemaker, forgive him, forgive her. Forgiveness lessens the torment, believe me. Well, I want you to feel free to contact me on the social media or through our website at exploits.tv where you can sign up to receive our weekly updates. 
And don't forget to download our free Jerusalem Channel app. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Darg, Maranatha, and Shalom.